0: So I started thinking, what do I want to do with my, you know, long-term plans? And I had a business mentor at the time. We had stayed in touch because we worked at other firms. And he had asked me one day, have you ever thought about starting your own company? And I'm like, absolutely not. And he said, I have this idea for you. And so it was a lead generation company of, you know, staffing business development reps for software and tech firms across the country. And I thought, you know what? I talked to the wife, we were debt free, except the house. We had no children. And my wife said, if you're gonna do it, now's the time to do it. So I took the plunge and started a company with this other person. He owned 51%, I own the rest. Learned a lot, enjoyed it. And, you know, it's it's like parenthood. It might be the most exhausting, rewarding thing that you can do.
1: In a corporate world where all employees have great leaders with no egos, that create fun cultures where people can do their best work. The employees and companies thrive while doing great things for the customers, themselves and each other.
2: Well, we know that rarely happens. I'm Jeff Pelagio. I have been a leader for over 40 years for every t-shirt sized company from small 16 employees to extra large over 1 million. Please join me while I interview outstanding leaders that will share stories of great leadership and not so great. It will help you become a better leader while poking fun at all the crazy shit that happens in corporate America.
1: Hi, I'm Joe Deshawn, and welcome to The Corporate Couch with Jeff Palaccio. Today, Jeff is interviewing Ray Rucker. Ray is the Managing Director and Chief Connector of Connect 5000, a lead generation prospecting training and sales consulting company. Prior to founding Connect 5000, Ray had worked in a variety of roles in sales, lead generation, and business development. Ray has a Bachelor of Business Administration degree in Marketing and Management from Washburn University. You can learn more about Ray at connect5000.com. Let's listen as Jeff talks to Ray.
2: Ray very excited to talk to you and have you on the corporate couch this morning. Morning Jeff. Thanks for having me. Oh man, I'm good. I'm very excited we were uh, introduced uh in uh, Mick Johnson's uh, introducing awesome uh, uh peer group advisory uh monthly uh group meeting so uh I think that was back in 2015, maybe 16. I don't know exactly, but, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm grateful that, uh, with Thanksgiving coming up in two days, thankful that we've become friends. So, um, yeah, excited, excited to talk to you.
0: You too. So I don't remember what year it was, but it was pre pandemic. That's all I remember.
2: Yes. It seems like ages ago, like, you know, with the pandemic, yeah, you know, it's kind of the lost sense of time. Like everything is kind of a little bit of a time warp. But uh, yeah, and, and I think you published a book during the pandemic. So we're going to talk about that too. So
0: Well, I, hadn't, I couldn't go anywhere or do anything. So like, might as well just get this done and off my bucket list. <laughs> but no, I do enjoy, you know, years later, even though we don't meet as much, friendships and colleagues that I had made that I've kept going, even though we as a group do not. And so, and ironically the other day, I ran into Mick at the gym because he re- renewed his membership there. And so it was kind of like a little surreal nostalgia.
2: Yeah, there you go. So I'd I like to start off with a fun question. Uh, even people that know you at least a little bit, what one thing would surprise them
0: about you? Um, I would say thing that surprises them that I'm very, very introspective. And what I mean by that is that I am an avid journaler. And so back when I was living in D.C., back in the day, I was hanging out with my friend Carrie, and she, we were uh, sitting there watching TV, and she was writing in a book. And I'm like, what are you doing? She goes, I'm journaling. I'm like, what are you journaling about? She goes, anything I want. So literally on January 1, 2000, I started journaling, and I don't know, I may have missed maybe three days and 24 years, and it used to be pen and paper, and now I journal, but I'm more introspective than people may realize of it and maybe reflective is the right word rather than just on to the next thing
2: interesting yeah i can i can I can see that so you're on a streak essentially for 23 years of journaling uh, maybe missing you know 3 to 5 of the whatever the math is there's uh, 7000 uh, such days yeah whatever just plus days that's phenomenal i love it
0: yeah. Oh, thanks. Like, but yeah. no, I enjoy doing it. It's just the method has changed from pen and paper now to an online journal. And I'm not sure if anyone will ever get to open that journal again. Yeah, Who knows what's in there?
2: Triple, encrypted. Uh, yeah, all that good stuff. What, uh, what's the uh,
0: platform you use to journal? I use it. I don't know how I came across it. It's called Penzu. It's penz dot com. It's the paid version. You have the paid version. It's an app or you can have the unpaid version but um it's it's nice and sometimes i use it to just to clear my head and clear my head get it all out and whether i do something with it or not it just depends but i think it's been healthy for me and it's been my counselor and my therapist for 24 years there you go i, I love it no i i don't uh, i got into the mini
2: journaling so every day and uh Probably not as consistent as you, but I would say you know, I probably average at least six days a week. I use the five minute journal. Um, so every morning you do three things you're grateful for, uh, three things that would make it a great day today, and then um, uh, some kind of affirmation that you want to write down. And then before you go to bed at night, you know, three great things that happened today, and and what did I learn today? So that's kind of the, what I've been doing. So that's kind of the mini journaling. But I, I'm a big believer in that I think it it unloads things in your mind to clear your mind to do to think better to relate better to be more present. So it's not all caught up in your you know limited uh, RAM uh, brain memory. You know, so um,
0: absolutely. Yeah, and I do actually have a I actually do have a gratitude journal so my mother in law years ago they went to she went to Italy and brought me back this journal, yeah. and it was blank and it had no pages and so finally, it sat at my desk for years so I've always thought of I thought of myself as a gratitude as a very grateful and thankful person. but I think about two years ago, I decided to write only things I'm grateful for in this just as a gratitude journal, even though I'll still write things that I'm grateful for on my journal but I think that I don't know who said it, but some famous philosopher said. And, you know an un, unexamined life is not worth living,
2: sure, yeah, and
0: so maybe I'll pass this off to my kids, maybe not, might damage them for the future,, yeah. <laughs> yeah,
2: you have a while to think about it though, so it's all it's all good, uh yeah, thanks for sharing that um so um, you know, usually I talk a little bit about um what was fun as a child, but you have such a unique story, Ray, I thought maybe you could share. You know, kind of, you know, you're our first uh, Vietnamese-born guest, but you, I think you have a special story to share in terms of your uh, upbringing. So why don't you share that with the audience?
0: I was born in Saigon, Vietnam, in 1973. So if you're doing the math, I just turned the big five zero. So thanks for joining me on that on that <laughs> birthday special, Jeff. Yeah, but, what is um... it like
2: being fifty? I I don't know. It's been so long ago for me, right? I don't I, I don't remember. <laughs>
0: You know, the the funny thing is say they, it's they, they say age is a number. I mean, I feel like I'm still thirty years old, but I'm sometimes like my body tells me like you're not thirty anymore. But back to your original question, my parents, they had both of my parents are white, they had two of their own children, they couldn't have any more, so they decided to adopt. So somehow, some way, um, they came across this organization called World Vision and they started the process. So, long story short, I was born in Vietnam and then they the story is is that World Vision found me and two other boys wrapped in newspaper on orphanage steps and they weren't sure too much but the other two boys didn't make it and so I was the only one that was alive and so uh, my parents adopted me at the age of one they were living in California at the time and then the the plane that I was supposed to be on apparently it made um, news because it crashed and everyone was aboard and so my parents thought that I was on that plane but apparently there wasn't enough room, and I was on the next plane. So I think they were relieved. But it wasn't until my maybe 30s or 40s that I looked up the story online about the crash. And so I felt really, really grateful and thankful. But um grew up in a very, as normal as normal can be, um, family. I My parents never made it a secret that I was adopted. And, you know, they all, I always knew I was loved and cared for. It. And I think my one of my parents said, hey, we chose you we chose you rather than just having you. So um, always felt fortunate by that. Uh, but it's like at times I forget that I'm Asian because my parents are white. My wife is white. And a lot of my friends are white. And it's not on purpose. It's just, you know, maybe I'm of my surroundings. So, but no, I feel very fortunate for the life that I've lived.
2: Yeah, I knew about the the orphanage and, uh, you know, being dropped on the steps, I I didn't know about the plane crash. So I mean, wow, just talk about, you know, there's a bigger plan, you know, there's whether you believe in God or the universe. I mean, you know, you were put on that second plane for a reason to be where you are today. So that's just amazing to me. So thank you for sharing
0: that. What was uh, fun for you growing up uh, as a child? What did you love doing? You know, I grew up in a small town, so so we moved from, from California to Texas to Oklahoma to outside of Topeka, Kansas. So seven miles north of Topeka is Silver Lake, and it's a maybe a town of 1,500, and it's, a, it's still, I don't believe that there's a stop, there's not a stoplight in that town anymore. I think my graduating class was 53, so I had a very normal, rural Kansas life. Um, I think that one of the takeaways was we didn't have a TV in our house until I was uh, like in sixth grade. And so I was an avid reader because there wasn't the internet back then and there wasn't much to do. But I think that still carried over years later that I still consider myself an avid reader, always trying to learn things. But um, parent, I mean, growing up was just pretty normal. Uh, Went to school. My mom was a stay-at-home mom. My father was he worked outside the home and had dinner five or six nights a week. I would say I would categorize as very normal for better or for worse. But it's funny that you mentioned that, but I literally was the first Asian person to graduate from my high school in 1992. Wow. So um, because you could go back and look at all the classes. They had it like each class in a glass case. And I went looking and I'm like, huh, that's interesting. <laughs> Jeez. fuck <laughs> Yeah, I uh, I did
2: uh, notice uh, that your dad was a uh, uh, welder pipe fitter. And, I, and my dad was also, I think we talked about that over lunch one, maybe one time. But yeah, very interesting. Um, any aspirations as a child? Like, hey, when I grow up, I'm going to be,
0: what was it? You know, I think I wanted to be an astronaut back then. I don't recall the details, but, you know, astronomy kind of uh, interested me at the time. But I think my dad... I was always good with numbers, but my dad had said something effective, like, if you study hard, you could be an astronaut and you get paid 10 cents per mile, you know, to the moon. So I started doing the math of how many miles to the moon, like I could make some money being an astronaut. <laughs> and clearly that didn't work out. But um, I think, you, you know, may have been a fireman, maybe been a, 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 a astronaut, but I think looking back. I always wanted, I didn't realize I had entrepreneurial gifts inside of me, but I always thought maybe I'll have my own company doing something, but I never knew what it was until like years later. So you stay
2: local, you enroll at uh, Washburn University in in Topeka, go Ichabod's, right? Right. Did you stay with the same major from freshman year to graduation or did you have some changes there and why did you pick that major or
0: majors? As I got older... I always wanted to make money. I'm not sure why that was because we were very middle-class. I I was never lacking for anything, you know, never missed a meal, never missed anything. But I think at some point I decided to want to be a CPA because I heard that CPAs make good money. So my freshman year and sophomore year, I was an accounting major. So I think in freshman year, I took financial accounting and I did fine enough on there. And then I took managerial accounting my sophomore year and, and passed just fine. But then... I think by junior year they make you take intermediate financial accounting and I got like a 31% on the test <laughs> and I decided, you know what? Accounting is probably not for me. So I made I dropped that class. I'd never flunked anything in my life and I switched from being from accounting to marketing and managing and it was humbling, but I realized that I didn't want to sit there all day crunching numbers that I enjoyed being around people and marketing was generic enough that I could do a lot of wonderful things. But yes, it was humbling back then, but I have nothing but props and respect for any CPA out there because that stuff, that stuff is hard.
2: Yeah, so intermediate accounting or whatever the class was where you got a 34% is like the organic chemistry of being – pre-med, you know, it
0: separates the people that go on versus the people who quit. Right? Yes, it weeds you it <laughs> out, but it was probably the best thing that could have happened to me yeah. just because, you know, I, I'm looking back more of a sales and marketing guy than I would be a number cruncher. Sure. No, definitely could see that. Um, so what uh, when
2: you graduated, tell us about the first job you had at a college uh, and how did you secure that job?
0: I thought about law school. I thought about grad school. I did you know, a lot of the normal things, waited tables, interned. Um, I tried one sales job and it was 100% commit commission and I failed miserably. I won't even say who the company is because they're no longer in business. Other than those type of jobs, I was thinking about my life. And so I was waiting tables at the Outback Steakhouse in Topeka, Kansas, but also I was interning for a law firm during the day. So one night a I passed a I, I passed the check to this gentleman in a suit and tie. And he says to me, So are you finished with school yet? And I'm thinking, like, who are you? And he goes, You wait on me a year ago. I'm like, Oh, okay, sure. He said, My son's in town. He works for a nonprofit in DC and he's looking to hire. Would you be interested in meeting him? I'm like, sure, whatever. I don't care. <laughs> and so I interviewed with him as for as an educational think tank in DC. And I was like Topeka, Kansas, DC. So I interviewed with the guy and he says, all right, you pass. I need you to meet with my boss. So I flew to DC and met with them. And my first, I guess, real job was working for a nonprofit in DC as a program coordinator for a think tank-ish nonprofit. And so uh, it was, I enjoyed it, learned a lot of things. And I was out of Topeka, Kansas. I'm like, what could be what could be uh better than being out of Topeka, Kansas? You go from the, a state capital to the capital of the nation, so
2: there you you know it was there was the similarity. So how long did you stay in D.C. Uh, either at that job or progressed on? Uh, what what was the what was
0: after that for you? Sure, I stayed in I stayed in D.C. for three years, and the funny thing is, is so I went to go meet well, I was supposed to meet my boss's boss. Um, I flew out on the weekend and I didn't have a place to stay, so. Uh, long story short, uh, I was thinking about like, uh oh, what if I don't have a place this week? I'm kind of hosed. But so I believe that everything happens for a reason, and I believe that God was orchestrating this. So I was looking. I interviewed the interview, and in the and they the passed, and they they said, sure, you're in. And so I started looking for um, apartments and everything, and everything was just ridiculously expensive. And this is back in 1998, and I saw ads for you know ton of money, and there was one ad I thought it was $600 plus a, a third of the utilities for essentially a closet. So I happened to look at the Arlington Sun newspaper. This is back when we had classified ads for, the, for those of you who don't remember this. And I saw a, a an ad that said $300 a month plus a third utilities. And I'm thinking, I know what $600 gets me, what is 300? So I happened to call the number. I did not leave a message. The guy calls back and I was staying with my boss on his couch for the weekend. And he, he answers the phone. He's like, you know, someone called here like, oh, it must have been Ray, you know, looking for a place. So I thought to myself, I have nothing to lose at this point, minus my pride and dignity. So I took the taxi cab out to there and it was two other guys. One was he, one guy worked for the Pentagon and the other guy worked. He went to school at George Washington University and the place was immaculate and clean. I had to have my own room and I have to share the bathroom. So for from ninety-eight to two thousand, I lived for three hundred dollars a month plus a third utilities. Wow. And it was my sign that I was supposed to be in DC. Yeah, yeah. But while I was in DC, I worked for a I worked for the nonprofit for a year. Then I worked for a telecommunications firm. I mean, you remember back when MCI was oh, yeah. a company. Sure. I didn't work for MCI, but it was back when telecommunications were swallowing each other up and merging like crazy. Yeah. So the company I worked for was Facilicom. They got they merged with World Access, then got bought out by someone else all within months, and I left there, and then I went to work for a PR firm, which I loved because I talked to people who are literally on the news. Some of them, they've sent long since retired, and that was fun, getting uh, people booked on shows like the news that night, getting booked on radio appearances, and then um, after three years, I moved to Kansas City, which was close enough to Topeka, but far enough away.
2: So uh, at the telecom company in DC, were you doing any outbound calling there? What, were you, what was your role there?
0: I, I don't remember what I I think I did. Some, I was in the NOC. yeah, <laughs> and we were oh, troubleshooting. The NOC, yeah,
2: national operations center. Being seventeen years in telecom, I kind of
0: familiar with NOCs. And I was a troubleshooter, and we were we were testing lines all day long of what lines that would go down. I think that's what it was.
2: Interesting, interesting, but.
0: But back in the day, if you remember, there was a lot A lot of my friends were getting jobs in the telecommunications business. And so, you know, MCI was one of them. And, you know, to get a job at MCI right out of college was a big deal. And oh, obviously sure. the world has changed since then.
2: Yeah, it's literally because pe- most people listening to the podcast don't know who MCI
0: is. Uh, but uh, Or even Sprint now, yeah. who just got acquired by T-Mobile not that long ago. Yes, uh, 100%. But, uh, you know...
2: Those were the days in the 90s that it was all about uh, long distance uh, calling and they were it was all outbound and getting people to switch or getting people to come to either MCI, Sprint or AT&T. So it was a it was a very uh, vicious uh, where telemarketing and telesales got
0: a bad name because, you know, you would interrupt consumers dinners. (laughs) Right. I do remember interviewing with Sprint when I first moved back here to Kansas City. I don't, I think it was a sales job selling something. And I just remember in the interview, they said, and the most that you can make here is $250,000. We will cap your income at $250,000. And I'm like, all right, that's a good problem to have. And um, (laughs) if I get there, I will, uh, I'll be okay. And I I didn't get the job. It was just funny of Sprint's uh, best practices. Well, and think about it in today.
2: You know, late two, early two thousands. You know, two hundred fifty thousand is what seven hundred fifty thousand today, or you know, whatever six hundred (laughs) thousand.
0: Who knows? Who knows? Inflation. Not not bad for slinging long distance services. (laughs) That's right. That's right. But I do remember that. I do remember. It reminds me of that. I think it was uh, Alyssa Milano. Remember, she did the one eight hundred Save a Lot. Right, Right. Save a Lot commercials. Right. And all those you know those prepaid cards you'd have to uh buy in order to call long distance. It's kind of funny now with yeah, technology today, 100%. but we're dating ourselves jeff yes we are let's let's move on so
2: we don't lose uh like i said half the audience um yeah, so uh tell tell us about your first sales role and and how did you get into the the, the sales realm was that in in Kansas city i assume
0: yes so so move back here and they needed a job right away. So I went to go work for Enterprise Rent-A-Car, and they just hired people like crazy. I mean, I think they expected their turnover to be like at least 80% plus. So I got a job right away at Enterprise. It was kind of great because you learned to drive the city, and I was unfamiliar. unfamiliar. Bounced around a couple places, trying to figure out what I don't want to do with my life. And then finally, I went to go work for this kitchen and bathroom company, and it was 100 percent commission. At the time, I was heavily in debt, and I thought I had nothing to lose at this point, and I'm kind of desperate. And so, I had a, I had a, it was a guy from church who, who had started a company who eventually sold, um, sold the company to Home Depot. But he his his manager, uh, he the sales manager at the time really invested in my career and really taught me how to sell. I always had the gift of gab and I always thought I had decent communication skills, but learning, looking back, learning how to sell was a completely different story. But I think of Jim, how he poured a lot into my life, invested in me and, and, and I can contribute a lot of my success today from his investing in me.
2: Yeah. I think a common theme amongst, um, guess I've had. I mean, most they have at least one mentor that really helped their career and they still reflect on that person, you know, years later.
1: Um,
0: Yes. uh, And it it takes the, uh, you know, it takes a village kind of a thing is true and not many people you know, get to their mountain wherever their mountain is completely by themselves. And so I think of a lot of mentors in my life and Jim was just one of them who you know, looking back, like I, there was no way I could repay him, but invested time and energy into me. And, and, you know, I think now like investing that, you know, paying it forward to people in my life.
2: Right. Yeah. It's, it's, it's like great teachers you've had in the past. You never forget them and what they taught you. And it's you know more about the, less about the subject they were teaching, but more about, you know, life skills and, yes being a great person so um yeah so um what you know what led you to uh, uh co-found your first company so you you kind of get out of the w2 world and say okay i'm gonna start
0: my own company tell us about that journey right sure well if i think back to high school college maybe post-college jobs been fired seven times in my life, and I'm pretty certain I probably earned at least most of them. But so I so I worked for the kitchen and bathroom company for I don't know three to five years and really honed my craft. And but it was working a lot of nights and weekends. And so in 2005, I got married and I wanted more stable hours, so I went to go work for a software company in Lenexa, Kansas, and much more normal hours, much more normal life, and it was great. I learned a lot, learned how to sell a lot of outbound prospecting and outreach well my supervisor and i didn't get along the best and the owner went out of town and so she told me to move on the day before fourth of july and so it was kind of like i i knew something was going to change my life i didn't i wasn't sure exactly what was going to happen so i came home my wife had taken the day off and she's like what are you doing home early i said i lost my job she says okay so I I started thinking um, what do I want to do with my, you know, long-term plans. And I had a business mentor at the time. We stayed in touch because we worked at other firms. And he had asked me one day, have you ever thought about starting your own company? And I'm like, absolutely not. And he said, I have this idea for you. And so it was a lead generation company of, you know, staffing business development reps for software and tech firms across the country. And I thought, you know what? I talked to the wife. We were debt-free with the house. I mean, except the house. We had no children. And my wife said, if you're gonna do it, now is the time to do it. So I took the plunge and started a company with this other person. He owned 51%. I own the rest. Learned a lot, enjoyed it. And you know, it's it's like parenthood. It might be the most exhausting, rewarding thing that you can do. <laughs> I love that. Um
2: uh before we talk about a little bit more about that uh journey that starting your own company. Uh what was the big disagreement with your boss that literally waited for the owner to go on vacation and then fire you?
0: <laughs> I think it was a series of events, but I th- so looking back, I had a lot of entrepreneurs. at the end of the day, I'm a rule breaker and I'm probably not a good I'm probably not a good employee. And I think to myself she was the first thing she could have done was, you know, the entrepreneurial blood inside of me was like, let's do this differently, let's do this better, rather than doing what we've done before, let's change up some things, and I think it kind of drove her nuts, and I think a lot of people, and it doesn't make them bad people, they like, you know, very black and white rules, regulations, and they don't think outside the box, so I think it was a series of events that caused her to say, it's time for you to go, but I think it was the, I think looking back, it was best thing, because maybe I would have stayed in the safety of corporate America, so... But I would say, I don't know if it was one event. It was probably many.
2: Yeah, again, there's a helping hand guiding us uh, along our life's journey, I believe. So, um, yeah, so uh, what happened to that first company with your co-founder and uh, what was next for you after that?
0: Sure. So we worked together for a couple of years and I think we worked well together for a while. But at some point he had other business ideas and other things that he was co-owning and he didn't have as much time. And I felt like I was bringing in all the revenue and doing all the heavy lifting, but I was, but he was still getting, you know, 50% of the income. So I checked with my lawyer to make sure I wasn't violating any, um, you know, non-competes or whatever. And she said, you're free and clear. So I um, decided to start my own company. And so literally the same type of company, but just a different name. And I said, Hey, I'd like to start my own. And and I think he enjoyed, I think he was stunned at first, but then he's like, we're moving to California. This frees me up. I'm like, okay, great. And started connect 5,000 in March of 2010. And uh, it's been wonderful. It's been challenging and it's been rewarding. So, talk about the name of the company. I, I think it's a you, the way
2: you got to that name. I think it says a lot about you as a person, and uh, just uh, yeah, let the audience know how the how Connect Five Thousand came about. I
0: didn't realize it until like years later, but I've always been a connector. I've always connected people together through odds and ends, various things, but never really for like for income wise, and. I was always able to connect the dots on just weird things for people that they should meet because of blank and it served me well. So when I was thinking about leaving um, my business partner, there was a company, I don't know if they're in business, but it's called Target 250 and they targeted the something two fifty, like the Fortune 250 and they set up meetings for them, these type of companies. So I started thinking about what am I in the business of doing and thought about it and I thought, you know what, I'm the business of connecting people. And so then I thought about the fortune 5,000 because everyone wants to call on the fortune 500, but you know, there's plenty of clients and companies below that who are profitable, have money and can use services, but not everyone and their brother is calling them. So I kind of connected the dots of connect 5,000, made sure that the URL wasn't taken and I grabbed it. And, you know, at the end of the day, that's what we're doing is, you know, we do business development, lead generation for companies. But at the end of the day, we're connecting buyers and sellers together.
2: Yeah. So you started in 2010. It's and it's basically being uh, whether it's lead generation or being an outsource inside sales uh, uh, business partner. So 2010 to 2023, what big changes have you seen since you started the business and where it's at now whether that i mean obviously there's technology changes but kind of what what else have you seen uh during that uh, from the beginning to
0: where you are where we are now i'll give you a side story so from 2010 to 2013 i had connect 5000 and then one of my clients one of my clients wanted to hire me full-time and so i actually set the company to aside for a bit and went to work back in corporate america And I thought, oh, I like the black and white. You know, I kind of had a, I think looking back, the company had a slow point. It didn't come to a screeching halt, but it came to a slow point. And I was like, what am I going to do? And the client, you know, needed someone like me. So they hired me full time, salary, benefits, everything. So I went to go work there. And I got, after six months, I was bored to tears. I was bored to tears, went somewhere else. And I had to travel a ton. I was traveling three or four days a week. And then my father passed away in 15. So I basically decided, okay, that's enough. And I went back to connect 5,000 full time. I kind of burned the ship. I'm like, you know what? Corporate America is not for me. I'm most happiest when I'm working for myself. And so I went back to that. But I would say is that, I would say that, you know, if I look at this shift, people people are tougher to get a hold of, right? People are inundated with whatever, they're busy, they're, you know, time starved, and you could get, you could predict with ease how often you could get a hold of someone back in the day. It's definitely gotten worse. And I think the pandemic made things worse because everyone started working from home. And unless you had their cell phone number, the only way you were going to get a hold of them was by email. And, but then if people are getting inundated with email all day long, they literally may not see your email. So I think that's been a massive change of barriers have gone up, response has gone down significantly. And I don't think it matters if you're Amazon, Microsoft, or a Connect 5000.
2: Yeah, so even today, you know, three plus years into the pandemic, the, the contact rates have gone down because the, the cell phones are not as accessible because it's more of a, usually a personal cell phone that you're trying to uh, uh connect to right to to communicate
0: with somebody reach out i don't know if i'm answering your question linkedin is golden but if everyone is going if if all the marketers and sellers are going to linkedin and all that way then that becomes inundated so i i don't know i think it's having you know having a multi-channel approach and having multiple you know arrows in your in your belt but sometimes things just get oversaturated because everyone's going to that platform to do. Yeah, if so, that's what you meant.
2: Yeah. Yeah, no, exactly. So we, and then you decide that you write a book during the pandemic <laughs> what, what, uh, and we'll, we'll talk more about the book. But what was kind of, what was your thought process about, um, you know, writing your first, uh, I always, when people only have one book, I always say writing your first book because I know there's a second in you. So what, what was, what was your thought process? So I had,
0: you know, 100 plus blog posts, I had some videos, and I've always wanted to write a book. And because you know, people get inundated with phone calls, they get inundated with emails, but not many people get inundated with books. So I I thought about writing the book, and I would start and stop, start and stop, start and stop. Well, I happened to have lunch with my friend Stacy, and we were talking about it. And she said, Hey, I know this woman who uh, could help you write the book if you're interested. And she says, Do you want an introduction? I'm like, Nope, I don't. And so I said, let me try this one more time by myself. And she was a stay-at-home mom, English major, and she's done she's go- done ghostwriting for other folks. So I tried it one more time. I said, forget it. I, I'm never going to do this. And so she made the introduction. She connected me to this other woman and who lives in town. And so I met with the woman. The price point was great. And I said, here's what I need. I need you to organize my thoughts, but help me keep my own voice and take all these jumbled, Blog posts, writings, everything, and put them all in a in a book to make it congruent, where that the it's fluid from start to finish. So we started that actually before the pandemic, and then obviously the pandemic hit, and I thought, well, might as well get this done, and and it was it was a it was a fun collaboration, and I'm glad I did it. But I was going to say, I felt like it spiked. My business spiked when the pandemic hit, ironically, because I think when it first started, everyone's kind of nervous. And I said to my wife, you know, I don't know what's going to happen. Maybe we should tighten things up. And then I felt like we exploded. And I'm thankful and grateful. But but during that time, I was able to get with Sarah and get this done. And it was probably a one to one and a half year process from start to finish. So I use it as a calling card to send out to people. And it's more than paid for itself um, with training sessions, and closing deals. But it was part of it. It was just a pride thing of like, I wanted to write a book and I marked it off the list. But I never thought I'd plan on getting rich doing it. I think my last royalty check was like (laughs) $6.55. Last time we had lunch,
2: I believe your last check was like $7.68. So you're
0: trending down a little bit, but it's all good. And I think the last time we had lunch at that Indian place and they didn't turn on the heat and we're sitting there in our <laughs> North Face Coats shivering and eating hot Indian food, which yes. is kind of funny looking back now.
2: <laughs> I, wanted to, I want to talk more about the book, but something you said about the pandemic and your business spiking, uh, do you think it's it was because of all these companies, obviously had outside sales force and now they can't walk into clients anymore or, or prospects, do you think that's what increased your your business during the uh, when the pandemic started?
0: Looking back, I I think so, because my folks were trained and ready to go, and they were used to picking up the phone when you weren't required to. But I think it was a little bit of luck and timing as well. I ran into a gentleman who was very well connected as well, so I think it was it was several factors. But yes, when during the pandemic, when all that people could rely on was the phone and email, it definitely benefited us and you know I think that my goal when I started the company was to really have five reps and you know we have close to 30 now and so maybe I should have more ambitious goals or something but I'm thankful of how it turned out because you know obviously a lot of people weren't so fortunate during the during that time.
2: So what, when you actually started your own company, and you, whether that's the first one when you own 49% or Connect 5000, what was the biggest surprise moving from a W-2 job to running your own business? What was kind of like, oh, wow, no one told me about this?
0: Well, I, I think I kind of knew it in my head. I mean, that you're responsible for everything, right? If it's, it's got to be, it's got, if it's, if it, you know, I don't know what the old saying is, it, 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 it's up to me. Is, yeah. is the bottom line. But I think, though, years ago, working for that one company where I was 100% commission, I think it kind of helped me do that. Of like, if you don't sell and if you don't work, you're not getting paid. And I think that's just kind of carried over years later into the B2B world. But I would say is that there wasn't much of a change except it's it was always the... Always be prospecting. Always be looking out. Always be hunting for new business. I think that was kind of just ingrained in me years later. That you know, no one's going to do it for you. No one's going to care more about your company than you are.
2: Yeah, and having read your book, I th- I really think it's um, it's a phenomenal tactical um, way to. You know, gain more business and build relationships and connect with people. And I like how you call it connecting. You know, kind of that uh, you have to meet somebody first and you know st- start building a connection, and start building a relationship. But it's very tactical. And I, you know, your uh, ghostwriter or whatever that uh, that woman's title is. I, I think you guys did a really great job in terms of because your personalities throughout that book and you talk about your life and how you got there and. You know how you know you get fired, and uh, you know why you started the company, and you're in debt, and uh, at some point. Yeah, but I just think it, and you know, email templates, and I just think it's really uh, a great guide for somebody to uh, to use, especially. Uh, I taught a sales uh, leadership class in Ku uh, Rock Chalk Jayhawk. I know you're a big fan. Minus um, Saturday nights.
0: Debacle of uh, self-inflicted wounds,
2: but I digress. It's hard to with your third-string quarterback uh, to you know, but he did a great job, Ballard. See, we talk about everything on the corporate of couch here. You know, KU lost to K State, their uh, in-state rivals uh, for the 15th straight time. Um, unfortunately. And the Jets
0: lose to almost everybody.
2: <laughs> but no, again, that book. I think I recommend it to my class. I think it's a you know, it's templates and it's a really a great tactical guide. I, that, and I, I, like the fanatical prospecting book by Jeb Blount, but I think it's a little more strategic and then, you know, right. way more, you know, I don't know how many more pages it is than yours, but a lot of that is wasted pages in my opinion, but there are some good points in that book also, but.
0: Um, Thanks. And I think I put his, I, I added some resources to the back of the book of other if you don't like this book here's some other books i think i put him in there yeah as well
2: yeah no, and you talk about zig ziglar and yeah you have a lot of other uh i'm actually looking at uh your resources yeah yeah you have a lot of books actually for additional resources um but uh yeah i'm sure that one's in there um
0: and I didn't get the corporate couch as a as a resource because it was in existence back then. Yes, th- thank you for the shout out. When you write the new edition,
2: uh, you can add that. That'd be great. Um, right. Yeah, so um, what's next for Connect 5000? Where's kind of the, you know, what's the long-term
0: vision? Uh, where are you gonna take it? Part of me thinks, uh, depending on what day you ask, there's parts like, I I feel fortunate and very thankful. And ironically, it's Thanksgiving week of, you know, taking an idea and and employing 30 people. That's been satisfaction. Again, if we don't grow past that, I will be th- I'll be thrilled to death. I think now the next step is how do we make the company much, much, much less dependent on Ray Rucker so that if Ray disappears and goes on vacation for a week and it will hum by itself? Like I got to go on vacation and I can go do things. And and it's really training future leaders. It's training future leaders here to do what, you know, to to essentially be business development managers and gurus and inside sales reps and training their team on how to do it effectively and well so that they can have the lifestyle that they want. So I think it's the multiplying effect of multiplying leaders Mm -hmm. and making it less dependent on me that would, I would call that a success, but I don't have, you know, I don't have a number in mind of we need to be at a hundred people or need to be at a hundred million. It's just more of, you know, how can I, how can I, you know, invest in the next generation of sales leaders and connectors. So uh, cause at the end of the day, it's really all about relationships. Right. Um, You can take out the word sales. People, you know, it's the old adage. People want to do business with people they like. And um, I was talking to my friend Christy Rogers the other day and she had a nice compliment. She said, hey, you know, you make people feel special and you make them feel like they're your best friend. And I'm like, oh, good. I hope that doesn't come across as not genuine because no, it doesn't. But I think that's the mentality you have to have in sales of like, you know, I think Zig Ziglar said it best. You get what you want by helping others get what they want, and and it's been I've been very 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 fortunate to do what I like to do. I get like paid to connect people, and it's not it doesn't seem like work. I mean, there's certain days it seems like work, but for the most part, it's problem solving and 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 working with others. So, I'm I'm thankful.
2: Yeah, no, that's great. You know, I love to ask great leaders like yourself uh, advice for two groups of people. The first group is those recent college graduates who are now about to embark on their professional journey. um, What advice Ray, would you have for them as
0: they navigate their first job search and the start of their career? For the college graduates, I think I would be ruthlessly blunt and say, you don't know everything and that's okay. (laughs) I, I think I look back at myself at my 22 or 23 years old. I'm like, oh my gosh, what a cocky little punk I was that I knew everything so my advice towards new college graduates is be humble and be hungry just because you know I you know as you know I recently turned 50 and I look back I'm like my gosh first of all how 27 years has passed but how much wisdom and knowledge you accumulate that just simply takes time so for the college graduates you know you can learn something from that job you can learn something from that person you may not need it right away and it you know, but there's so many life lessons to learn. So be hung, be humble. And then and be hungry of, I want to learn more. And this may not be my, this is probably statistically speaking, not going to be your final job, but if you can, you know, there may not be lessons learned until years later that you can recall.
2: Yeah. I love that. Um, the second group Ray is, you know, After college, you get a job. You usually don't have people to lead under you, uh, you know, from an org chart perspective. But once you get that first leadership role where you're responsible for two, three, five, seven people, whatever it is, what advice would you have for them as they begin their
0: leadership journey? Um, My advice would be is um, a couple of things is remember is like it's not about you it's really about your team. Like I don't have a team. I mean, there's literally no way I can do it all. I only have so many hours and so many minutes in a day. And so, you know, rely on your team, invest in your team. And remember, it's not all about you, but also I would say is, is I know it's kind of an overused statement, but servant leadership, servant leadership is critical. So I think to myself, I'll, I'll ask my staff one at a time, You know, questions like, you know, what constructive feedback do you have for me? And sometimes I just don't want to hear it, but I need to hear it. And then there's other things I can ask more periodically is, what can I do for you specifically? And sit there and wait for the answer. So I would say it's investing in them by serving them, but also equipping them to do their job well.
2: Yes. On the
0: other thing I would say is, and i I did not take it I, my old pastor had this um had this uh picture and it was a turtle on the fence post and so there's this picture of a of a fence post out in the middle of nowhere and there's a turtle on there and the question was is how did he get there? you know how did the turtle get there and someone put it there and so again, I think of the many, many people in my life. That, um, who have invested in my life when I didn't have anything to return, but also years later, of you know, we were talking about the you know, mixed group, how he he brought a bunch of random people together, and out of that, of making connections and you know, sharpening others, of you know, including yourself, Jeff, um, like Jeff, you and Christy, and others there that you know, lifelong relationships and friends with. Yeah, if that makes sense.
2: Yeah, no, 100%. Ray, you've been great. I love your story. I love uh, you as a person. I think you're, you're a big connector and a giver and you, you've, you've built a great company uh, and wrote a great first book. So thank you for being on the corporate couch today.
0: Thanks for having me, Jeff.
2: Always good to see you. I just love talking to Ray Rucker. He's just, uh, he's he became a friend as we, you know, we met at a peer advisory group that met monthly, uh, started by Mick Johnson. And uh, yeah, I just, I mean, his story, I, uh, incredible. Uh, I knew that in the orphanage, you know, he was one of th- uh, three boys, you know, babies left on the steps of an orphanage in Saigon uh, at the end of the Vietnam War. Two of the boys, the, the other two boys died. And then, um, Ray gets in this orphanage, and then through the World Vision not-for-profit organization, he's coming to to the U.S. The plane he's supposed to be on—I can't remember why he missed it. Obviously, he's a baby, so it wasn't his fault. But the plane crashes; like I think everyone dies on the plane, and you know, and then he gets on the next plane, and you know, uh, seems like a wonderful family that adopted, uh, you know, eight eight total children, and. Uh, Yeah. And so, yeah, I just think it's a great story and interesting career, but I love connect 5000 because I love the name. So he's a connector and he's generous and he's always trying to put great people together, you know, and so connect 5000. I said, well, why the 5000? He goes, well, I'm, you know, it's kind of the fortune 5000. You know, it was kind of my target uh, audience. uh, in terms of people, companies, I think I could help uh, in, his, in his words, and then his book, how to score from first base uh, in sales, uh, is a, I think it's so good. It's just tactical to, you know, email templates, and really, here's how you do it. And I think it's very well written, he uh, talks about, um, you know, his life in there and his career journey. And it's just it's, it's very authentic, just like Ray is. And he even said it in the episode and he said it to me over lunch, like, you know, he said, Jeff, my royalties last month was, you know, $7 and 18 cents. And I go Ray, but it's the, you know, it's the Mercedes, it's the Rolls Royce of uh, business cards when you have a book. So anyhow, uh, just really enjoy talking to Ray. Joe, how, what, what was your takeaway?
1: Yeah, it was a it was an amazing interview. I just uh, loved so many pieces of it that I thought was interesting. There was one thing that struck me a little bit about Ray and about his life. If uh, if you look at his resume or his LinkedIn profile or something, he's worked for a lot of companies. I mean, you know, a lot of companies, and it's interesting that when you hear him talk about his story him leaving each one of those individual companies wasn't always under the best of circumstances. But it was always because he was making himself better or he was making, finding himself a more appropriate place to be at at that moment in his life. That right there is a uh, message that I'd like to give to our audience is that everybody's got their own individual story. i worked for very few companies in my entire life. Stayed with them for a long, long time. Ray worked for you know a dozen or so different companies. You've worked for a lot of different companies. Everybody's got their own different story about their life, and none of them are good or bad or anything. It's just it's just what it is, and what you make of it. Uh, Ray has obviously, through the company that he ended up landing on and founding and runs today, has landed in a very good situation. And uh, I think that all of those individual pieces of all of those experiences they had at all those different companies, each one in its own way contributed to the success that he enjoys today. I think that's a great lesson to learn.
2: Yeah, 100%. And, yeah, he moved on because he needed to. And, you know, I think he was professional in terms of his disagreements with his uh, manager or the, or the company owner. But, he, you know, he did what he needed to do. What other leadership advice would you want to leave our uh, great audience during this uh, 2023 holiday season, Joe? Today,
1: we're going to go to a great philosopher that I don't think we've visited before. And um, her name is Phyllis Lapin. Phyllis one time said about her boss, Michael Scott, she said, I'm glad Michael's getting help. He has a lot of issues and he's stupid.
2: Thank you so much for listening to this episode of The Corporate Couch. If you enjoy the podcast, I would love for you to take two minutes out of your day to rate us five stars and write a review. Please join me next week to learn from another great leader sharing their professional journey and insights.